Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 18th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Raja Bodhi, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, why are we recording so early in the morning? Well, there's a funny story. We actually recorded about half the episode yesterday, and there was a lawnmower going on in your background going, and I'm making lawnmower sounds, you know, cutting all that grass. And of about the 25 to 30 minutes somewhere in there that we had recorded, maybe a little less than that. I don't remember exactly how far we were, but of that time, basically all of it, except the first three or four or five minutes was the lawnmower in. So I like your lawnmower impression. It's, it's spot on. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So that's why we are up at bright and early 8 a.m. on our day off from testing. So we normally we wouldn't have to be up this morning to get this podcast recorded because I have a very busy week ahead of me and or that's why we're recording early. Yeah, that's fair. I hate mornings. Mornings are the worst. <laughs> I just is it just because you feel sluggish? I feel sluggish. I just, I don't, I like, it takes forever me to get to sleep. And then once I'm asleep, I never want to wake up because I work so hard to get to sleep. So I want to sleep for like, I don't know, 18 hours straight, ideally, and then be up for like 30 hours and you sleep for 18 hours. Like that's my ideal sleep schedule, but that's not how society functions. Huh. 18 hours of sleep, 30 hours awake. That would be interesting. Yeah. It's just, I don't like waking up because it just, you could just, you were sleeping and it was so nice and you were dreaming and then you don't have any stimulants in your system. So I don't have any of my Adderall because I'm on AD- I have ADHD. I don't have any caffeine because coffee is delicious. So <laughs> I have to get that in my system, but it's hard to get that stuff before you have it in your system. It's just a whole thing in the morning, you know? Mm, that's very different from my mornings. I don't take any stimulants, but it does make sense. You should sense. try it. It helps you stay awake once you're awake, and then you never want to sleep for 30 hours. It's perfect. (laughs) Sure, that doesn't sound perfect, but it makes sense that that's how it works. (laughs) So believe it or not, today's episode is not all about stimulants. It is about what we're going to be playing at Nationals. Michael has broken the format with the most broken deck of all time, and he's going to tell you all about it right now. (laughs) I wouldn't say that I have broken the format or I have the most broken deck of all time. I think... I am playing a reasonably normal-ish deck on a weird axis, and I think that it will catch some people by surprise, and also I think it's pretty powerful in testing even against teammates that kind of knew what I was doing. It seemed like it was going pretty well. So I'm basically playing Icelander, but I cut- Wounding Bull Icelander. (laughs) I cut a lot of the red spells that, in my opinion, are not- a great rate like red ice bolt red aether hail even red freezing point i've trimmed and instead of playing these cards i replaced them with like roger said red wounding bull wounded bull i think it's wounded bull it's a three for seven that or three cost seven power attack that says if you're lower than your opponent when you play this it gets plus one attack so as icelander you're almost always lower than your opponent so this card very frequently is a two card eight hand that your opponent's not going to be playing D-Reacts against you. They're going to have less blocking armor. You're just probably going to get more damage from playing this, even if they want to block it, than you would from casting a Ice Bolt or a Freezing Point early to mid midpoints in the game. Then I'm playing the better version of Wounded Bull. I'm also playing Red Findle's Fighting Spirit for similar reasons. It's a two-card eight swing, and 
this one's better because it blocks for two, but it, blo- it gains life when you block, whereas when it bolt doesn't do anything when you block with it. And then I'm playing Scar for a Scar because that's just the best of this effect. And these efficient attacks are there because Icelander's damage is really inefficient on her own turn normally through casting her spells, like I was saying. And this kind of fixes that problem so she can threaten reasonably more damage in a turn cycle by playing these attack actions instead of playing spells. It makes some of the fuse cards worse and it makes blocking equipment actually get value against you, which is unfortunate. But if your opponent isn't playing any arcane barrier, you're still pretty happy even if they get a block some of your attacks. And yeah, so that's that's my deck. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait to see it win nationals as you attack your opponent with Wounded Bull for the win. <laughs> now, the, the attacks are never what actually is the lethal hit. The attacks get blocked and then you kill them with spells on their turn. I believe you call them tenderizers. Yeah, they're the tenderizers. Instead of playing the big meaty spells, we're just playing big meaty attacks. Hmm. Tenderize them. Yeah. I will say it's an interesting deck. There's a non-zero percent chance I play this deck at Nationals. I think what's making me a little apprehensive is that it has a very high skill cap on it. And obviously in the hands of the world-class players like Michael Hamilton, it's going to really shine. But in the hands of mopey old Roger Bodie, I feel like there's a lot of pitfalls and missequence turn cycles that I could fall into to make the deck really falter. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that you would pick up on from playing it for a few weeks and you'd probably, I, I feel like pretty confident that you could play it well if you had more than a little less than a Five week days. to prepare for the <laughs> yeah. events. It is probably a little late to pick it up, but I guess you said you might play it. So what are you, you're not locked on a deck yet. No, I was trying to build a Oldheim deck that was a little bit bigger to try to get more equity or flexibility in the mirror by playing Anathos instead of Sledge. So if a lot of the time in Oldheim mirrors, everybody blows up Tunic, you always need two cards in order to swing your hammer. But Anathos is nice because you can just always swing it for four, worst case scenario, just three for four, instead of needing the four resources total for six. Yeah. And in, in order to accommodate that, then instead of playing Findall's Spring Tunic, I was playing Heart of Ice, so that way I could always pitch two cards with an activated ability of Heart of Ice on my turn to make my opponent's de- defense reactions worse, and then pitch the other card to swing six if I still want to, or swing four if my hint is more efficient that way. Yeah, having the option to one card four instead of two card six, one of those is a much better rate than the other. So the times that you would want to swing one card four, it's really nice to be on Anathos instead of Sledge. So Right. What makes it awkward is that sometimes you want to one card four, but keep the other card in your hand in order to try to set up an arsenal. But that means at that point, then your opponent's just going to ice react you in the mirror more often than not. And then you don't get the arsenal anyways, and then you just swung less damage overall. Um, it is kind of nice because instead of blocking two cards for six, your opponent only blocks one card for three, and then usually leaks a point of damage at that point then. But then you're also spewing more cards in your deck then than they're spewing. And I guess spewing, but I mean like discarding, because you're blocking two cards for their hammer attack, and they're using one card uh, out of deck, and then one react that goes back into deck for one point of damage. And then that usually puts you behind in the late game then at that point, as far as like cards of deck. So you have to worry more about fatigue. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense about the fatigue stuff. 
especially if they're on two deck and occasionally getting the one card six, then they're like at a fine place tempo wise and in a good spot for the fatigue race. So yeah, just there were just a lot of things that looked nice about it in theory and in the first like five to ten games of testing that I re- I was really enjoying the deck, but then games ten through forty, I think I've played so far in Flesh and Blood Online. There's just been a lot more clunkiness and awkwardness that I picked up on. And you still have some really, really rough matchups in Dromai and Dash. For Dromai, I was trying to play cards like Zealous Belting or even Scar for a Scar alongside of E-Strike in order to have more go again. But I still don't think that beats their endgame setup sometimes where they can still just play like um, like a Muragi and a Chromai or something like that in the same turn, or um, you're still not very efficiently dealing with Passing Mirage. Mm-hmm. That's the one that gives uh, no Phantasm, right? Yes. Um, because you have Go again, but you don't necessarily have ways to generate action points because it's still a Spectra Aura. Yay, Spectra Auras, yay. Um, so it was still <laughs> Sorry. a very long, grindy matchup. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I testing from the old time side i was definitely also struggling in Dromai, and that's part of why i moved off oldheim to a deck that in my opinion actually has a good Dromai matchup now that it's on these attack actions but i guess we'll we'll see how it goes to the tournament but i've been pretty happy with how Dromai's looked for me yeah you just so, go pop pop now and they're not expecting poppers out of icelander <laughs> so you're not playing this anathos oldheim anymore you're thinking about playing the Icelander deck that I'm playing. What are you what other decks are you looking at potentially? Maybe Viserai, if I could try to figure out a way to make the old high matchup not atrocious. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a good way to necessarily fix the Icelander matchup. So if I see you in the finals, I'll just scoop and we'll move on with our lives, I suppose. But <laughs> be a nice I spot think- to meet. <laughs> yeah. And so Against Oldheim, I'm trying to think of ways to play like a more defensive strategy, similar to how they were playing with Skeletta, but trying to set up like these 12 to 20 rune chants in order to just like set up a really big Mordred high turn, go off that way. And then you play like more defensive reactions like Sink Below, and then Reduce to Rune Chant also is a really strong card that allows you to uh, set up a rune chant as well as block efficiently from Arsenal. I just haven't tested it, and I've heard decent things from um, Zach on our testing team, who's been playing a lot of Viscerai lately. So I'm probably going to start with some version of his list and try to see if I can make it work. And then I just feel like, once again, kind of like how we talked last week, Viscerai is just a deck that I feel like just has like 40 to 50% matchup win rates across the board and has the least amount of matchups that are just like, Oh man, I just can't ever win right now. I think it's really only Icelander that I can think of. And yeah. If, if you can get the old time matchup to a good spot. Yeah. And there's a world even where like maybe that semi OTK plans viable against Icelander. Cause mm-hmm. I guess I'll ask from your perspective, what makes the Viscerai matchup so good for Icelander? I think the reason it's so good for Icelander is because you get to maximize Alluvian Constellus when Viscerai is attacking you almost every turn. Your his rune chants are popping and just giving you a bunch of free resources over the course of the game. So I think it is possible that like an OTK plan would work pretty well against Icelander. I'm not I'm not really sure. I haven't tested into a more OTK ish plan. I haven't honestly. 
I haven't gotten as much testing in as I would like to. And unfortunately, I'm going to be busy all of next week. So it's yeah, kind of way for testing. I've been quite busy in real life taking away from our uh, flesh and blood testing time. It's really unfortunate that we have lives outside of the game. <laughs> Yeah, even you would think waking up to play Flesh and Blood for an hour and a half every morning of the week would be enough to make you feel prepared for an event. But really, just like it takes a lot of games to really have a strong grasp on all of your matchups, especially when you're like going back and forth between what decks you're going to play, what heroes. And there's just a lot to learn in this game and not infinite time to learn it all. So you do the best of you do the best you can with the time you have. Yeah. And then there's weird niche picks like Rhinar or Dorinthia, you know, the tier D heroes that I just try to pick up wins with because people aren't good against them. And Rhinar did just win Malaysia Nat, so maybe Rhinar is busted. Yeah. I Again, I really did like that Rhinar list. So uh, I think for a second I thought Dorinthia won a Nationals too, but it was a Blitz Nationals, so it doesn't count. Yeah. Not very helpful for determining decks that are good in class constructed right and i don't and i think there's even less of a world where dorinthia consistently beats old time than necessarily although i played against an axis dorinthia and i think if the axis dorinthia fat decked against my old time deck they actually won that game it was just really annoying just dealing with like two axe swings every turn consistently just a two and a three and a two and a three yeah and did you they play- still block really efficiently did you play rampart or did you play stalagmite um i played well like i didn't know they were on axes right before the match so i played stalagmite thinking that i'd get more equity against it mm-hmm. against like Dawnblade and stuff like that with winter's whale and i think against if you know face up they're on accessory ramparts the better choice but obviously i didn't know and played uh stalagmite yeah that's another matchup that i haven't gotten a lot of reps into so i'm not even sure when like I guess I, I don't know how to beat Dorinthia with old time. Everyone says that like Dorinthia is this hero that you need to have a bunch of reps against to play like, to know how to play against. And I feel like I do not have those reps. So it's, it's yeah, I played against it in the battle Harden uh, round one and I almost lost that game and I've lost against it one other time on Talishar and then I beat it the other. So I played against five times against Dorinthia and I think I'm three and two overall against it. Um, no, sorry, four and one. I lost one time against it online, and then I beat it on the Battle Hard and the other three times I, I played against it. Um, the one time I lost, they just fat decked and then just were able to set up really efficient second cycle and uh, ending on like a remembrance to put in all of their good non-attack actions again. And I just couldn't keep enough cards in my hand to both uh, swing back relevant attacks and block out this consistent damage from Dawnblade every turn because Dorinthia does ask you to block with almost every card in your hand when she's doing her thing. Mm-hmm. And so you have to decide if it's worth it to like let her get her counter or let her push all this damage in order to try to swing back. And that's always a risky proposition on Oldheim because you're just swinging back this one big attack. And if they have the defense reaction, like a, a Steel Blade Shunt Red or... Uh, unmovable red in their arsenal while they're on as the last card in hand or they're just sitting in arsenal it's kind of a risky proposition to just come back with one big attack on top of which warrior just naturally has just a lot of good blocking armor yeah that makes a lot of sense i think overall i'd say guardian's biggest weakness is decks that can easily cover up their big powerful attacks like when you get your oak and old old unmovable it feels like the game is just over sometimes yeah, because y- you have to usually like take some kind of 
tempo loss in order to set it up because what you're doing is you're saying, well, I'm going to take whatever damage you're presenting this turn in order to keep my three to four cards that I need for this Ogonhold. Um, and then hopefully then after that, this Ogonhold hits, you no longer have any ways to meaningfully pressure me again. And then I can push another big dumb attack that's hopefully disruptive against you, which you will once again need to either full lock out and uh, spend a lot of resources doing or else then if the on hit doesn't matter or if they're able to play through it, then you can once again get back on the back foot. It's kind of tricky for old time to recover from that point sometimes. Yeah, definitely. I guess that's kind of like why fatigue old time is potentially a thing you could do if people are boarding in a bunch of defense reactions when they see old time. Maybe it's time to really like try to fatigue people again with old time. I've never thought it was like the best strategy, but when everyone's old time is this aggro deck that you want defense reactions against, you want to block out. And if that's the case, then maybe the maybe the fatigue builds look fine again. I don't know. Until you look at the 55 minutes on the clock and realize that you've used 55 or 54 minutes and 30 seconds and your opponent's still at 10 and you're at 20 and there's still 10 cards and deck for everybody and you have to have <laughs> the awkward like, oh, well, I think I can win this game. But you can't ask your opponent to concede because there's a judge sitting right there and you can't explain anything more. And they're like, no, I think I can still win or they'll just take the draw and then you lose anyways. And it's like, hmm. Yeah, I guess that's a pretty solid argument for not playing hard fatigue in tournaments. But. Yeah, just because the clock is just such a real thing and it's really difficult in this game. So like in Magic, I feel like turn cycles were a lot faster. And so playing a control deck, I never had an issue with the clock, like playing hard control decks. In Magic. Like I would play the slowest, dirtiest, do-nothing decks in Magic. But my pace of play is always extremely fast. I'm always... uh at least able to find competent lines. I'm not always saying I find the best, best lines that maybe I would find better lines if I took like an extra, you know, 30 seconds to think about it. But at least in Magic Gathering too, your turn cycle was a lot of the time playing control deck was just land go. So the game was exclusively played on your opponent's turn. Whereas that just never happens in flesh and blood because if you're not at least like swinging a hammer or eventually you'll be presenting some kind of attack to your opponent and they'll spend like two or three minutes sometimes like, hmm, do I block? Do I not block? What happens if I get crushed? What if they have the attack reaction? <laughs> There's just a lot of things to consider and that just burns clock time when you're playing these decks. Yeah, and one other big difference between Flesh and Blood and Magic that I think is a big part of why Flesh and Blood takes a lot longer is in Magic, your hand like stays between turn cycles. You draw one new card every turn and for the most part, you you, you know your hand before your turn starts or you, you know your hand from like the beginning of the game and it's never going to have a big shift in what it is unless you cast some big spell that draws you a bunch of cards. Like but, Sphinx's Revelation, hell yeah. But for the most part, you have your hand and it just changes by one card every turn. So you're not adding that much new information each turn cycle. So you can like, you have this consistent plan that doesn't change that much from turn to turn. And sometimes you draw like, maybe your hand is missing a two drop and you draw a two drop on turn two, but that doesn't change anything. You're just now going to play your two drop instead of not. So... Whereas in Flesh and Blood, at the end of each of your turns, you draw four new cards, and then your opponent's attacking you, and you're like, well, how do I maximize these cards, both defensively and offensively, f offensively, and how does that fit into my current game plan of fatigue or aggro or whatever it is you're trying to do? And then do I want to give up some block on a piece of equipment this turn, do I think, or can I save it for later? Do I know if one of these pieces are coming up in the next few cards on my second cycle there's just so much to consider on any one hand of flesh and blood it's just 
naturally very time consuming. Yeah. And then on top of that, maybe your opponent leads with a scar for a scar and you're like, okay, I know what I want to do if they end without an on hit, but what do I do if they block or they end their chain with a snatch? Does that change things? And you have to figure all that out from the first attack to figure out how you want to block. And it just, it just does take a a lot longer to play a turn cycle in flesh and blood. And that's just the nature of the game, I think. Right. So all that to say that is making me shy away from old time too. Plus the other thing is even if I just play a more traditional version of old time, the mirror is just miserable. (laughs) (laughs) I just hate the mirror old time. It's just so, I don't know, boring. Um, Once you play it, like the first 10 times you play, you're like, Oh cool. I get it. Like there's these cool interactions and you got to play around pummel in these spots. You got to manage your life total and these cards matter and these cards don't matter and blah, 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 blah. And then you start to realize like, hmm, well, really it just comes down to like who gets exposed the elements off. And like, if we both expose, then the game becomes truly miserable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it just is not a very fun experience. Yeah. I, I really like old high mirrors outside of expose the elements. Like when no one's playing that card, I think the mirrors are, in my opinion, pretty enjoyable. There's a lot of like small things you can do to get an advantage. And there's like, a lot of things that you can slightly mess up and will kind of make the game hard to win if you make some mistakes. And I think all that falls apart when they expose your tunic and you can no longer ever one card sledge. And suddenly it's just every turn is two card sledging because if you don't swing your weapon, you'll fall so far behind in the fatigue race. Yeah. So I guess expose is a big part of why I'm not registering old time for this event. And I also think that old times are going to be pretty ready for the mirror and i was finding if i was devoting too many sideboard slots to the mirror playing one copy of exposed maybe six or seven d reacts that it was really hard to keep maintaining good matchups against the aerodex and having a reasonable matchup against drill by an icelander just it's a lot to cover and i don't think you can actually cover it all from the old time side yeah because against dash and dromai um and Icelander, you're the beatdown. They actually have the better long game and second cycle and inevitability in the matchup, which is weird because Oldheim is designed to be this really long, grindy hero, but ultimately there are just other heroes that just have better endgame states that are better than just like fused Oaken Olds and just swinging Sledge or, or Winter's Whale every turn. Like those are good game states to get in, but obviously the game states of setting up all these amulets of ice and frost hexes and insidious chills, stripping your entire hand and dealing 30 damage to you is a better end game than a fused Ogan old or a little bit, a little bit stronger. <laughs> yeah. Or attacking you with like 50 power of dragons in one turn is probably a little bit better than swinging sledge for the turn. So, yeah. And it's interesting where Oldheim has these tools to be very good against the aggro decks. And I think like you can build Oldheim builds that are basically that will basically never lose to the aggressive decks. But if you do that, you cannot also reasonably cover these more slow, grindy decks that are happy to play a long game against you because now that you're built to beat these aggressive decks, you just don't have the tools to win a long game against other slow decks. Yeah. And then, like you said, I also think putting those cards in your deck to beat those matchups makes you reasonably worse in the mirror because you don't want defense reactions in those matchups and Oasis Respite. It's like not an amazing card in any matchup, weirdly. It's like pretty mopey to cast that card most of the time. Yeah. And you just get in this weird spot where like like you said, there's just not enough 
room and your 80 cards to have a consistent like deck that functions well and can cover all the decks you need to cover. Yeah, and I would still expect Old Time to do pretty well at this event. I think that you can get it wrong and or not get it wrong. You can like maybe sacrifice one of the matchups and maybe not run into a super skilled pilot of that matchup or things go a little lucky when you play against them. And that makes it so that you can usually you can kind of hedge to be reasonable against two of the three things, in my opinion. And you can be like or you can be like okay into all three of them. But I think I guess I think that Old Time is a solid choice and you can be in a good spot against a lot of decks, but you can't choose to beat everything. And that's kind of where it just it just doesn't seem like it has it'll be the best deck forever because you can't beat everything, basically. So whatever the flavor is then other decks can pop up to beat it. And there's also like, as you're devoting cards for the mirror too, it makes you worse against everything else. So like, even if the old time, old time is the best deck, it'll be kind of like, it gets kind of inbred where the old times are built to be the other old times and then the other decks all can rise up and beat it. Yeah. And ever since Lil, I have like a little bit of PTSD where it also makes deck selection difficult because I just feel like no matter what I pick, I'm just going to hit my bad matchup seven round or seven out of my 10 rounds I'll play over the weekend or whatever. And that's why I'm leaning towards a deck like Viscerai that doesn't necessarily have like those like really polarized matchups necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's a good thing for the metagame overall that there's so many checks and balances, obviously. Like I think it speaks to a really well-designed format, but it just makes having confidence in your deck list much harder for the players sometimes at like the highest competitive levels yeah that makes sense have you thought about briar much uh no <laughs> okay because i think she's actually the closest here to not having any really bad matchups i think viscerai is much worse into icelander than briar is and they're both like pretty similarly bad into old time depending on the specifics of the old time list so if you're looking for a deck that doesn't have any bad matchups i think briar is a very reasonable choice because i think old time at least the version of old time that i would recommend and that i played at the pro tour is quite good into briar i think a lot of the old times are moving away from that stuff to be better into icelander dromai and the mirror and that gives you room to have a reasonable matchup from the briar side yeah that makes a lot of sense i just haven't played a lot of briar in a long time i think i could be and in fact it's not a hero that i've ever like mained i've mained viscerai before back when skeleto was around Mm-hmm. And so I just don't have a lot of reps on Briar at this point. I don't know. Maybe it's still right. And then speaking of not having reps on a hero, there's the hero that we keep talking about, which is Dromai. <laughs> and I played maybe two games on Dromai <laughs> across all these weeks. Yeah. I think Dromai is probably the most difficult hero to play. So I don't think I would recommend switching to Dromai unless you get a lot of reps in over the next week. I think. Icelander is hard, but Dromai is like really weird and has very different plans depending on the matchup. You need to learn how to like set up your end game against Oldheim and have a reasonable like threat throughout the game. And then against the aggro matchups, you need to play like very, very different. And then against Icelander, your matchup's also very weird. So I think I think Dromai is very good, but I think that she's one of the hardest heroes to play right now. Yeah, I would definitely agree. That's why I'm not really thinking about playing her too much. Mm-hmm. So this Nationals event, it's half class constructed, half draft. How have your thoughts and feelings about the draft format changed since Leo? They haven't. Why would they have? <laughs> you just don't like uprising draft. Yeah, I think it's this. I have the exact same strategy in this draft 
than I did in the last few drafts, except now I know what Asvolai does. So I think I, I, I've shored up that matchup. I've, now that I know what Asvolai does, I, I think that'll, that that fixes losing to that card. And <laughs> It's still a good card, even when they play it correctly. <laughs> yeah. I just plan on never drafting Dromai. And <laughs> that's why it was weird yesterday when the team meeting, when I was around, I think we spent... The majority of the meeting talking about drafting Dromai, and everybody was like, "Oh, but this dragon's so good, or this card's so good." And I would totally take like blue Ember Moss and a pie pack one pick one, and I'm like, "No, I would, <laughs> I wouldn't take that card like in my first five picks." I, I just, I'm terrified of being like the third Dromai in the draft pool, and then you just don't have like a functional deck, and you're just playing like all these mopey cards that just lose <laughs> to everything. Yeah. I remember you used to think being the third Eyesider was the worst thing in the world, and then you were the third Dromai. Yeah, and then and then Michael Hamilton just showed me how to be the 18th <laughs> Icelander in the draft pot and still have winning draft records somehow. So that that fixed my opinion on it. I was yeah. young and inexperienced in those in those road to Natch drafts. You know, it was a different time, different place. I also was. I was putting some very bad cards in my Icelander decks back then too. So I've learned a lot too. Yeah, I th- like I think the biggest level up for us was just realizing that like all of the zero cost cards are like pretty good, if not like very good in Icelander, and like Scar for a Scar is just like insane in Icelander, and where that isn't necessarily like readily apparent when you first look at all the cards in the format. Yeah, and then even the poppers are quite good to attack with. You wouldn't like expect Red Flex or Red Fiendals to be like bombs, or even Red Brother at Arms to be extremely good in. Uh, Icelander against the non Dromai decks, but turns out that just hitting Fi with a big attack is quite good because he doesn't block very well and he just takes damage. He doesn't want to block anyway, so he holds his whole hand. He's like, all right, we're going to come back with a big attack, and then you give him a frostbite, it messes up his turn or something. Yeah, so your plan is to attack with red fine dolls and then into blue ice cards on your opponent's turn in limited and classic constructed. That's uh, very novel. I learned, I took my draft Icelander decks. I'm like, well, we're good about these. Punching people with red five and also red scar for a scar. Let's do that in constructed. And that's how we got to my class constructed deck. <laughs> well, I can't say that it's wrong. I hope it's not. I do think one downside of my deck is that the Briar matchup is notably worse, I think, with my version because embodiments of Earth are very good against trying to attack people for four to eight damage. Whereas yeah, but- you still have your arcane and like hand disruption against Briar as well too, right? Or do you just don't feel like you can get to like that end game consistently enough now? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I ha- again, I haven't tested it enough, but it, it did seem like pretty tough in the games that I was playing. So, so now I should be playing Briar, so I have a good Michael Hamilton matchup again. That is what I like the most in my decks. When I when I pick a deck for a tournament, you're on a whole dime. I play Prism. I have a good Michael Hamilton matchup. Easy, can't lose. Yeah, I, I just think Briar is very good and probably a little bit underexplored by our team. After crushing the Pro Tour, four of the top four is a pretty good showing. And then we kind of just like, I don't think we spent as much time on her as we potentially could have because we were kind of, we, we knew the format would be old time heavy, but a lot of these old time decks are cutting some of the cards that make the Briar matchup so good. And at that point, the old time matchup is probably pretty reasonable. So yeah, the format's definitely shaking out to be a bit different than we were expecting it to be, even from like, when we were talking about like the Nationals decklist reviews like uh, a week ago now. so Yeah, that was only like four days of recording, an actual recording time, huh? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay, so 
talked about constructed, talked about limited. You actually you actually booked your flight pretty recently after you queued in the LCQ. Are you yeah? Are you excited? Are you nervous? Um, I'm dreading it. You're dreading? Oh, no, that's not good. That's uh, supposed to be I just, fun. I just, I, I feel like I'm, like I said, I'm just going to do my two one in draft and just never win a game like a classic instructed. Like I need to see a therapist or something after my results in Lil. I'm just scarred from it. Like it was, it was like so frustrating to put that much like time, effort, and like energy into it and then seeing the rest of the team do so well and then i'm just sitting there like oh well i guess i'll just not win i guess <laughs> yeah like i liked going i enjoyed hanging out with the wolf pack very much i had a grand time overall but the flesh and blood part which was supposed to be like super sweet and fun was not super sweet and fun and extremely frustrating and disheartening and made me question myself as a flesh and blood player in not good ways <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. I think, I guess, like, do you feel like that's something that, like, like your your results from the weekend, do you think that's something that wouldn't happen to other good players? Or do you think, like, that it means that you're not a good player because your results weren't great? Like, what? Yeah, because, like, you're, you know, uh, for over the year that we played, you've had a lot of success in, like, battle hardens and callings and pro tours now. And I haven't been able to do anything <laughs> i had like one decent results in like top 16 in cincinnati and then well at orlando too i mean yeah i guess the so like the first two callings i did reasonable at like it wasn't it was like top 16 or top 32 in like orlando and cincinnati and then since then it's just been like scrub after scrub after scrub after scrub after scrub and like battle hardens i guess battle hardens aren't necessarily the best example because it's just lose and you're out but at callings and the pro tour um they just have not been good results. And then the road to Nets season went like abysmally poor for me. Uh, and I had to like barely scrape in at a last chance qualifier. So I don't know. Like, I think I'm above average. Like I could go crush my local armory events, like no problem. Like that, that's fine. But as far as like competing at like the world stage or national stage, uh, I think it's a very difficult hurdle to get to. And I don't know that I'm like the caliber of player to like, actually do it now because i think a lot of my strengths are like looking at the meta evaluating the meta and like tuning decks like i think i'm a really good deck tuner you couldn't just i'm not good at like just blanket deck construction but like if you give me like a list of 80 cards and you're like like i said a lot of times on this podcast i really love turning like d's into c's in like decks like just mm -hmm. finding like those small niche upgrades to give you like an extra like two to three percent more equity and like your deck win rate, like that's a lot of fun. And I think that's what I'm like best at in like card games. But I think sitting down at the table, I'll sometimes like just misevaluate like a turn cycle and then like, or miss a tunic trigger. <laughs> and then I realize like two turns later, like, oh man, if I had tunic here, this whole turn would be perfect and I'd have everything going for me. But I missed that trigger two turns ago. So now my tunic's only at two. And well, I guess I just have a mopey turn and then that cost me like the game. And like, that's just like a really frustrating thing to be like, have happened to you consistently. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So you can keep being the Luis Scott Vargas of our podcast. And I'll just turn into more of like the Marshall Sutcliffe, the guy who's here for like witty comments and banter. And I guess that's LSV anyways on the, but I'll just be like the, the entertaining co-host, you know? <laughs> I love Marshall and no shade, but LSV does do the humor. <laughs> Yeah. Podcast. 
you're we just kind of reversed it where like you're the straight man good player and i'm the entertaining host uh kind of guy mm-hmm. <laughs> plus i have a lot going on in my personal life as well with the baby and moving and i started booking a tutor for my lsat prep so that's taking some amount of time away from me mm-hmm. and then obviously my job and yeah it's just hard to balance it all sometimes. Yeah. You do have a lot of things going on. Just a baby and buying a house alone, I feel like, is enough to be like, wow, that's a lot of things going on. And there's a lot more on top of that. So Yeah. I never feel overwhelmed by like life stuff. I feel like I have an adequate amount of like challenge in my day-to-day life, which is nice. But it just means that like I don't have the time to like dedicate to like being like the best best flesh and blood player i could be and at this point i don't even know how much equity there is in that for me overall because for what it's worth for like you said you you practice you and i practice about the same amount every week the hour and a half in the morning and then like i'll even play like like then then like i'll play like two games of talishar across the day like either in between like meetings during my lunch hour or like in the evening after dinner or something like that and you're just like naturally just a very good card game player <laughs> uh, to a certain extent. Not that you don't put in the work, but you still just have cert- a certain amount of like raw talent. Um, and I think I have some degree of raw talent. I just don't know if it's like top tier player raw talent. Sure. And I think I, I do also spend a lot of time consuming content. Like I listen to a lot of the Flesh and Blood podcasts and I watched a lot of Icelander videos on YouTube while I was learning uh, Icelander and kind of building her and that helped a lot too so I think like I don't know I, I I feel like I have a good brain for it but I also like spend a lot of time thinking about the game and learning about the game and I'm fortunate to be in a spot in my life where I can devote both an hour and a half every morning to play testing and listen to an hour or two of content every day and not have it I guess harm the rest of my life if that makes sense so and then I also do play a reasonable amount of games outside of our morning tests. I've been playing against Ben and Travis a reasonable amount and some other people too. So it's, yeah, I don't know. It's hard. On a positive note, I convinced our team to buy the probably the world's greatest t-shirt. This is the cringiest shirt. I can't believe we did this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a picture of it uh, in the YouTube video at this timestamp. <laughs> okay. Right around this, this mark when we're playing it back. I'm going to put a picture of the t-shirt and everybody can see how amazing it is. So if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, uh, just imagine the world's most perfect t-shirt that has like two wolves in a yin-yang fashion that's blue and white. And that's that's the shirt I'm talking about. Just imagine it and that it's perfect. It's and that's what the shirt perfect. looks like. It's everything Roger loves. It's got Azorius. It's got yin-yang. I guess it's missing Austin. <laughs> It's close. Yeah, we need, we need a picture of like my <laughs> wife in, on one sleeve and then a picture of my baby on the other sleeve. Yeah. That'd be perfect. But it'd be a little weird for everybody on the team to be wearing my wife and baby on their sleeve. So I, I think I'm okay with them being off. <laughs> Fair. But yeah. I do love me some yin yang. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you want to talk about flesh and blood wise before we sign off now? We kind of got off on a tangent here. We, we frequently do. I think our listeners are probably a little bit used to that by now. Um, I guess I am really looking forward to nationals. And if you see us there, feel free to come up and say hi. It's always nice to have people come up to you and say hey. And Yeah. yeah. If you're looking for either one of us, Michael will be around the top tables. 
um, or on, I'll be at some of the bottom tables, or if I'm at the top tables, I'll be standing directly behind Michael Hamilton watching his game. So that's how you can find us. <laughs> you got to give yourself more credit than that. <laughs> I'll give myself more credit when I earn the credit, Michael. There's no free handouts around here. All right. You earn what you keep in the wolf pack. <laughs> okay. Did you have any any closing thoughts either? Or all? Um, Flesh and Blood's still a lot of fun. I still enjoy the game a lot. And hopefully I'm selling myself short and I'll do reasonably well at Nationals. But we'll see what happens. I guess one more thing I do want to add is I think it's like, it's easy for me to say this. So I'm probably not the best one to be saying this, but it's it's not great to tie your happiness to your results and like i remember before nationals you were like you seemed pretty bummed that the whole team was like the whole team was going to be there hanging out having a good time playing together and you were kind of sad that you were going to miss the opportunity and that's why you were even planning to go to just the calling just to like see everyone and hang out to you along with playing the game and like i guess that's all big part of the tournaments are hanging out with people that you enjoy being around and doing a thing that you love with people that also enjoy it and i I'm really appreciative that I get to do that. And I hope that this doesn't come off badly saying that, but no, not at all. And I fully recognize that too. Like obviously tying your mental health to results is a really bad thing. And I don't think overall my mental health is like, like I'm not like crying myself to sleep at night saying like, why can't I just be like Michael? Why? Why? You know, uh, but, uh, at the end of the day, I'm still human. Right. And it's still, just a way to like you. Can, you just can't help how you feel, how you feel, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. And I am still looking forward to wearing our sweet shirts if they arrive in time, and if not, still hanging out with everybody and having a grand old time. Like I said in Lil, I had a great time hanging out with the Wolf Pack. That five liters of beer that we almost got through, <laughs> great, good time. One That's of my such favorite a good memories. Story. Now. Yeah, and that dinner that I had the world's best duck in that every, and, but everybody else hated their meal, but I bought us a b- nice bottle of champagne anyways, that also nobody liked, but I thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> Wait, nobody liked the champagne. I don't think so. Nobody else was digging it, but I liked the bottle of champagne. Okay. It was from France. How do you not get a real bottle of champagne from France? You know, I didn't drink any alcohol in France. That's that made you drink a little bit of champagne, right? Oh, maybe I did. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I lied. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I forgot. Mm-hmm. Blocked that out of your memory. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> oh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thank you very much. And next time you're playing Flesh and Blend, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.